You're listening to the Ace Podcast with me, Pete Perfides. It's always a delight to catch up with today's guest. Like so many incurable record collectors, she remembers the eureka moment which set her on her path. That involved an encounter with Maxine Darren's How Can I Hide It From My Heart, which featured on a 1990 compilation called Here Come the Girls. But even before then, the writing was on the wall, or rather on the pages of Plume, the fanzine she started aged 14, when her record store bag was more likely to contain records by My Bloody Valentine, Slow Dive or Bikini Kill. She was still a teenager when she decided to move from her native New York to London in order to make it in the music industry, and three years later, armed with considerably bigger contacts book, she returned to New York and launched a new publication, The Magnificent Cha-Cha Charming. To call it a fanzine would be to evoke something less sophisticated than what was a beautifully written labour of love, which made room not just for 60s girl pop, but for metal and Japanese chart pop. Chacha Charming continues to thrive on the World Wide Web and its creator has continued to thrive in the non-virtual world, living her best life and sharing her passions via a variety of enterprises. These include her weekly WFMU radio show, Sophisticated Boom Boom, her monthly residency at Brooklyn's Our Wicked Lady Club, editing Ilon Paz's acclaimed photography book, Dust and Grooves, Adventures in Record Collecting, and last, but very much not least, a string of sublime compilation albums that she's worked on, including ace releases such as Love Hit Me, Decca Beat Girls 1963 to 1970, Marlebone Beat Girls 1964 to 1967, and two volumes of Japanese 60s pop gems, Nippon Girls 1 and 2. And lest we forget the liner notes for the reissue of Girl Talk, the 1964 album by her beloved Leslie Gore. All that remains is to introduce her, Sheila B, or to her family, Sheila Burgle. How are you? I'm excellent and jet lagged. <laughs> Good. Well, I'll try. My job is to make you forget that you're jet lagged. Okay. When did you arrive? When did you land? I, r- I arrived yesterday morning. Okay. So I'm still a little, you know. Hopefully, I'll have the facts in my brain. But did you manage to sort of stay awake until sort of bedtime? No, I have a routine when I come to London. I I, I arrive. I have a very large English breakfast. So love your English breakfast. And where do you where do you go for this English breakfast? I stay with my cousin in Kensal Rise, and there's a place around the corner from her. And I was just dreaming about it on the flight. <laughs> <laughs> I landed. I say, please, can we go to that place? I don't remember the name of it. They take me straight there. Come come back to her place, nap, and then I'm ready to go. Wow. Okay. And what 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 are the kind of what are the the essential non negotiable components of this breakfast? What does it have to have? Two poached eggs. Beans, even though I don't eat the beans, but I like them on display. <laughs> Bacon, the it, classic, you know, tomato, uh, mushroom, yeah. and what else am I missing? And sausage. Sausage. I find that you have to have, you know, the the my favorite thing about the beans is that I get to cut little slices of sausage and then kind of dip it in the bean juice. Is that not, is, are you just not going there? I'll have one bite of that and then I skip the beans, but I like to have it on the plate. I know it's odd. It's probably no, it's an American a, thing. It's for, you know, that's, there's a certain aesthetic integrity to uh, that decision that exactly. I, can only, I can only respect. <laughs> Thank you. Is, <laughs> is the English breakfast uh, a sort of become a, a thing at all in the States, in New York? Where you no, live? we still have the you know, American waffles, pancakes, the unhealthy version. Okay, and if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm a guest of yours in New York 
and I want the, the sort of perfect American breakfast. Where are you going to take me? I take you to the few remaining old diners that are left in New York, and that's not many, sadly. I think, uh, like so many cities, New York has lost its many record shops. It's lost its many diners. It's lost many of its mom and pops. Mm. That's what. That's actually. I make a beeline for the my on my first full morning in New York at any given time. I'll get up super early and just kind of watch the sun come up from the kind of window of a diner. And the car, I just can't get over the kind of endlessly refilled cup of filter coffee. <laughs> is it filter? It's not even filter. What is it? I don't even know what it is. I, I'm a tea drinker, so I don't know, but yeah. it's. I think it is filtered coffee. And I'm really, you know, I get, oh, I get corny earworms, so I'll get New York State of Mind by Billy Joel in my head. You know, all the all the kind of things that must seem woefully obvious <laughs> overdone to you. <laughs> anyway, um, so... Um, We've touched on some of your sort of, you know, what I love about what and what was great about sort of summing up, you know, the, 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 you know, introducing you. Mm. Uh, the phrase that really I zoned in on, you, you are, do seem to be someone who's living your best life. You know, your passions have turned into the thing that you just do. Absolutely. And then that's it's so nice to have that said, to, you know, back to me. I am living my best life and I've taken the love of my life, which is girl groups, into every aspect of what I do and how, how lucky am I, really? And, you know, let's talk about this eureka moment because you know, I, I, I didn't really know this about you until fairly recently. I thought you must have, like, maybe your parents were playing girl groups when you were, like, three or something. You Not got a head start, but you didn't get a head start. No, I had the Bee Gees as my beginning. That's my first memory of music. So, so it, it makes sense, right? Considering the vocal mm. harmonies and the, yeah. the femininity of the Bee Gees. What what so, what Bee Gees songs? It was the Guilty album. That's right, how so. I went to sleep. So that album means the world to me. And Barry Gibbs, I think his and his chest hair that appears on the on the sleeve, very memorable. <laughs> Chest hair is going out of fashion. My, my, I've got two daughters. They're disgusted by chest hair. There's been a, there's been a paradigm shift in the um, in the perception of male hair. Yeah, it's all it's all up here now. It's all facial. It seems sadly, to be. it's it'll move back again. It'll keep going up and down. It's migrated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so those are your earliest. <laughs> sort of, uh, so Barry. Yeah. So you got the kind of the best of Barry and Barbara in one package. Absolutely. So that that was there, and then I and then I you know moved into various other types of music, but girl groups was never a part of it. Hmm. And and it was it was when I was listening to I was obsessed with indie music I was writing my fanzine plume and at some point in the in the mid 90s I felt indie music had totally lost its way I think in England I was always looking to England reading Melody Maker and NME because I just feel like England is such a it is the place really musically I think and the blur versus Oasis you know battle had begun and I thought how how absolutely dull compared to everything else that came before it <laughs> so I was I was really disheartened and I thought it you know indie music has lost its way the chart pop in like 1995 was awful mm. in the US and I think I just happened upon the here come the girls compilations that Mick Patrick and Malcolm Baumgart now at Ace, um, they put together. And so on this compilation was the Maxine Darren track you mentioned. And I just thought this record sounds like nothing I've ever heard. Every moment is bliss. Every melody is is just far beyond any of the melodies that I'm hearing at that time. And 
And then that coincided with me. Mo- so I discovered that compilation. I moved to London at the age of 17. I just graduated high school. I thought, I'm going to move to London. It's going to be, you know, slow dive. We're going to be playing on the corner. Chapter House are going to be at the local bar. And then, of course, it's like pub rock when I arrive. Well, so you'd missed it, basically. I missed it. Yeah. And yeah. it was so upsetting. And I got a I got a internship at Two Pure just after Stereolab and the Faith Healers and all the bands had left and they signed a band called Jack. I don't know if that shows I remember you. Jack, yes, yeah. <laughs> well, they had one really great song, White Jazz. Right. So, but you, that that kind of shows where even like Two Pure showed where they were at the times, yeah. right? Like from yeah. Stereolab, to, it's a very yeah. big difference. Yeah, so. Yeah. And then I, you know, Bob Stanley, who now is also at Ace, a very good friend of mine, and he invited me over for tea, and we sat in his living room, and he brought down a stack of Franz Gall EPs, and that was that was Eureka moment number two, and that's what changed me from a mere, you know, you know, happy to have the CDs into a record collector. I yeah. thought these melodies, like the Maxine Darren records, so out of this world, so moving, so fantastic. I'm dedicating myself to this. And from that moment on, I started buying records and I started with with French and British girl groups. So that really was like a portal. Yeah, it's like in Scooby-Doo when the staircase, when the bookcase slides open and suddenly you're thrust into a, a whole other world. Yes, and I've never been it. back into the world no. when I was 17. It's like I've been here forever and I thought at some point, you know, you think this is a phase or, you know, I'm going to grow out of this and move on to something else. Well, hell no. <laughs> this is my about, life. <laughs> the thing about, you know, and I, I don't look at, I don't s- sort of um, rummage as assiduously as you do or as Bob does. Um, but, he, but he, you know, but it's it seems to be like a fathomless, you can't, I can't see the bottom of this sort of well yeah. of brilliance, you know, and... You know, I'm constantly discovering things that, you know, uh, and I see, you know, because I've got a record shopping with Bob a lot as well. And even he's getting it. And you think, well, if, if Bob Stanley is still discovering something that came out on CBS in 1967 <laughs> that he didn't know about, then how much stuff was being put out? It's unbelievable. I mean, the wealth of material and, and that it's, it is bottomless. And mm. so that's what can keep one going for yeah. life. I mean, just when I think, OK, I, I surely know most of the girl groups that came out in the U.S. Like, no, I don't. I actually I don't even know how much I know because there's no way to gauge. <laughs> well, in the U.S. as well, obviously, uh-huh. it's kind of complicated and, and, and as a result made more interesting by the fact that you know it was you had these regional scenes so i guess you can really zone in on different sort of parts of the country is that something that you've had a chance to sort of really explore yeah i mean i do explore like the regions and also you know um major label versus independent i mean you just find these one-off things or like you know the father of a girl garage band would like release their you know daughter's record like this shambolic thing that probably only pressed you know a few hundred copies so it's 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 gigantic you know the the kind of possibilities for this music and it's it's really never ending yeah i mean every time i you know you sort of go d- down a sort of discogs rabbit hole at one in the morning mm. and you know you sort of you could you know, and, bec- uh, and partly because of the way discogs work so you know if you have like if you kind of if you find a singer um and it'll sort of tell you all the, you know, all the other iterations yes. of, of, of the groups they might have played with. And then you click on them and then you'll find some kind of, you know, some ki- some 
a homemade website in Detroit, <laughs> which will tell you about a singer that was popular just in about three venues between 1968 <laughs> and 1970. And suddenly, you know, you're back on Discogs looking at records which cost far more money than whatever it was that you were looking for. In oh, the I know the danger of the rabbit hole. And yeah. I have that with with songwriters, too. Like actually recently, one one of the shows that I did um, for Sophisticated Boom Boom, I focused on a songwriter named Rosemary McCoy. And I was thinking she's written quite a few, um, you know, well-known hits, but so many obscure records from, you know, early R&B to like late 60s. And I just thought... Now I have to have everything that she wrote. So yeah. that's like, now my want list is double in its size. And yeah. and here I am, what, like 24 years into collecting girl groups, and I'm only discovering this songwriter. And she wrote, um, I don't know if you know the track, Marie Queenie Lyons, See and Don't See. Oh, do I know? Oh, my word. Isn't that the great? I mean, that's one of the greatest records ever made, I think. <laughs> I, 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 yes, I mean, every single component of that song and the lyric as well, the lyrics are <sighs> so good. So that's Rosemary McCoy. And it's like, well, who's Rosemary McCoy? And then I start digging in and it's like she's written for Ruth Brown and she's written for Esther Phillips and Big Maybell. And and her story is fascinating. So I just think this is what this is what happens to me. Like this is my life, like discovering that one person and then having to buy everything or then discovering, oh, well, then actually Maxine Brown did the original version of See and Don't See, which came out on her album. How does that compare? It's not as tough, but it's beautifully yeah. arranged and it's very different. So, yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's a flawless song. So whatever version you're yeah. going to get is going to be pretty great. It's funny. There are songs that, you know, uh, you'd have to really work hard to screw them up, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just, that's such a clever song as well, mm. See and Don't See. And just, you know, it really, it's about a very particular thing and it alights. It's just exquisite. It is. Anyway, um, so just to backtrack a bit, mm. your, I mean, your parents must have been amazing because, you know, here, they, first of all, you decide to do a fanzine at 14 and most people's parents would have been like, excuse me, you need to be focusing on your studies a bit or... That yeah. they 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 that wasn't an issue, was it? It wasn't because when I the story about me when I was an infant was that I was obsessed with music and that everyone in my family knew I was going to be in the arts in some way or shape or form. So yeah. they had accepted it and they saw it that I was so focused on my passion from the moment that you know Barry Gibb and Barbara <laughs> Streisand album came into my life. So they just knew they they and and I'm. I'm one of those. It's like if I'm into it, that's it. Like there's mm. no what they, no one can convince me. So, I just that's actually I, sorry. I was just so completely focused. I hated school. I was miserable. The fanzine was my only, you know, savior. Um, it yeah. I you know I was in class writing my fanzine. That's what I was doing. I wasn't paying attention to any of the of the courses. That's, and, you know, and uh, but hats off to your parents because that's you know I think I think you know, you know to have a child that basically knows where they're headed mm. and uh, is, is it's just a wonderful thing it's a wonderful thing for them because they're spared the uncertainty that makes so much of adolescence difficult for people right because you have certainties in your life and when those certainties are records and really great records then you might end up having a really great life, you know. Totally. And, and and that life has been great. And I actually had this conversation with my mom recently. And she said, you know, Sheila, you're so 
lucky because you have this passion and it will always be with you. And you can go anywhere in the world and hook up with, with people that feel the same way about you, DJ their parties, go out you know, for lunches and talk about this music, go shopping together. And, and it really is, it's, it's, it's a great thing. It's, it's almost like I have my constant companion and I never have to worry. And so presumably by the age of 17, I mean, my oldest daughter is 17 now. Mm. And you, you know, you would have said to your parents... I'm off to London for a bit now. Wish me well. That was cool, was it? They were concerned, but they also thought, I mean, I have, I have, uh, my father's German and he did the same thing. Like he, he left, he got out of Germany as soon as he could. So he understands wanting to leave home and just be on your own and explore and that yeah. the greatest l learning can come from that. So I encourage you to encourage your daughters to, yeah, I mean, <laughs> to get I, out I, into the world. And we fall down, but you, you learned learning how to pick yourself up and, and, and hey, I, I can't. This is how coming to London is it was life changing. Discovering yeah. these girl groups, you know, hanging out with Bob Stanley, Mick Patrick, these men that took me under their wing. Well, what were the record shops you were going to at the time? I remember Hanway Street so well. Yeah. I loved that place because there were a few scattered about. I found Lorraine Silver's um, "The Happy Faces," which is on I think it's on Pie for like five pounds, now it goes for a fortune. Oh my word. So just like nobody was out looking for this stuff, you know, with a vengeance. So that was a great place. Beano's, Bob introduced me to Beano's. Yeah. Four oh floors at the God. time. I used to just walk in to the place where that man with the very long beard, you know, he stood by the, the 45s and I would say, you know, 60s UK British girl, you know, 60s uh, British girls, please. And he'd bring out these like metal shelves filled with 45s and my heart would just like, <gasps> You know, as I'm it, going it, through yeah. them. That feeling, that accelerated pulse, I remember it well. <sighs> um, and you have, uh, you're talking about, you know, your parents and this kind of environment where, you know, you can just sort of feel free to sort of, to um, indulge your passions. And, um, and another place where that happens is your weekly radio show. Yes. Three hours. I mean, I, I host a weekly radio show, so I, I know how much time it takes mm -hmm. to really kind of properly curate a, a, a show where, you know, every song is there for a reason. Mm. And now I'm guessing unless, you know, uh, you know, unless you have some kind of secret sponsor, this cannot be paying for itself. So this is like a labor. This is a labor of love. Absolutely. And it's I put so much work into it. And I say that with uh, with again, with. I love the, this work that I put into it. I mean, sometimes I want to pull my hair out because I was thinking, I can't spend two hours on a segue, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on one segue. Um, but just, you know, one thing that that I, that I this the radio show has put me in touch with is quality new music because I have been one of those people for a long time that's been so, their head so deeply in the 60s and 70s even, that I've been so dismissive of what's, of what's been coming out and kind of looking at the charts and being so distressed by what I'm hearing. And then the radio show reminded me that what the quality is not on the charts. The quality is is far beyond it, and there is so much to explore. There are so many people making music because of the accessibility to, yeah. you know, the tools to make music, and there is some just, I mean, records that have blown my mind, and so that to my my show is to like a place to show these records and also to dig into my collection and, and play the stuff from the past. So it's a real mixture. Yeah. And you're in New York. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, even even over here, you know, some you know great new bands kind of seem filter through even you know to here that kind of seem to be coming through New York and Brook, well Brooklyn. Brooklyn, mainly. yeah. Um, 
it feels like there's a lot going. I mean, there's a a, a band, the Shacks, for instance. Yeah, a, a Big group. Crown Records. Group, yeah, that, a lot that, of good that stuff. label itself seems to be putting out some fantastic stuff. Absolutely. Um, is what what else has sort of turned your head in the, in that? You know, I mean, it's not she's not a new artist, but her new album, the U.S. Girls album on 4AD, is unbelievable oh good i i just i went i drove to philadelphia a couple days before coming to london to see her because she didn't play new york this time around and i think i'm just gonna follow her around the country <laughs> because she's one of the greatest live acts i've seen in ages the the melody the, the kind of integrity in her music is so mind-blowing i just adore her are you one of these people that will if you'll see someone like that and you'll just seek her out you have to just kind of get an audience with them and tell them what you think about them or are you a bit more yeah, laid back. About I'm that. laid back is the last word to describe me. <laughs> I am complete. I'm overly enthusiastic. If I get my hands on something I'm obsessed with, everyone I, I need that that I know needs to know about them, and I, I almost want to shake my friends. Like you have to love this. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, that's that, that's why I'm so happy to have this radio show because I can just sit on my show and say, "This is the greatest record you've ever heard. You must listen to this. You know this uh, se- second verse lyrics. Like yeah. wait for the middle eight here. You know I can go into deep." Uh, you know, analysis of why the stuff is brilliant. People want that. I think people, listeners want that because, you know, we're so, you know, everyone's kind of time poor, you know, we're mm-hmm. deluged with content. And if you have someone who's sifting through it for you and you trust them, then that's kind of what, you know, we need to have those people in our lives who we can sort of rely on a little bit to kind of help us filter through all the kind of noise, you know. So uh, completely. And you know who's listening, don't you, from all over the world? You have yeah, that. but there's a comments board, you know, people check in, like, hello from Montenegro, you know, good morning from New Zealand. I'm like, wow, you know. It's funny, there, it's just one of those things where, where I complain because, you know, there's so much of everything and so and so almost sometimes too much choice, too much access. But then I think, God, normally, you know, 20 years ago, you'd just be speaking to an audience that's, you know, in a certain vicinity, you know, like maybe yeah, yeah. two or three hundred miles. And now, you know, I, I, I can be broadcast everywhere. What a, what a treat. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, you know, the right time to sort of be doing what we're doing, really. Completely. Um, and uh, so you, so you came back from London after three years. I mean, so you know, your enthusiasm seems to get you in into these really fascinating sort of situations. So I think I might have met you for the first time by this point, but then I suddenly heard, like again, our mutual friend Bob told me that suddenly you were head of A and R at Xenomania. Yes. How did I end up there? <laughs> well, yeah, well, having asked the question, would you like to answer it? <laughs> um, that was all. Yeah. So when I'm, I, you know, oh, that, okay. I moved to London in 96 or nine, 95 after I graduated high school and then came, went back to New York, lived and worked in New York for many years. And then in the, in 2007, came back to London. And that was when I hooked up with Brian Higgins, who was the head of Xenomania. And at the time, Xenomania were writing songs for Girls Aloud and Sugar Babes and kind of furnishing the labels with songs. And they decided, we actually want to do our own label. We want to find our own act. So so Brian Higgins and I had a really interesting converse, conversation. He has yeah. a great vision. and we And we just hit it off. And he said... Come on board as A&R. And I think he has a tendency, he's kind of one of those men that likes to say, you're going to be good, you're going to be brilliant at this. Almost kind of kind of instill this confidence in you yeah. and then take it away at the end. But oh. we won't go into that. Okay. Um, 
put kind of put this confidence in you and say you can do it and then you do it you know it's almost it's ha- someone having enormous faith in you and so I came up I went out into into um, England and and the states doing auditions put together girl groups put you know found found solo artists and we built a roster at Xenomania. Uh, some great things came from that. I mean, you know, there were some great Mini Viva tracks that I still play now. Tell us a little bit about Mini Viva because I think that's my favorite. Yeah, uh, Mini Viva. That was my. They were my baby. I. Um, they started off as a four, you know, four person girl group. That was my dream. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm the lover of girl groups. Let's put together a girl group. And then there were obviously, you know, conflicts, and these were young women, and what was going to work out. And so in the end, the, the two of the girls, Britt and Frankie, really ended up, you know, loving each other. So we just said, okay, let's let's have a duo. There are there hasn't been a duo in a while. And and then the first single, Left My Heart in Tokyo, was a top ten hit. And they went on tour and all seemed really well. But this was also, there was a, you know, at Xenomania, there was a lot of darkness. It was, a, as, as much as it was a wonderful place, it was a dark place. And so the whole thing imploded. <laughs> okay. And so was the, the, the darkness. I mean, I guess, you know, when you're under so much pressure, pressure to sort of provide hits, mm. then, you know, that kind of turns, turns people crazy, turns places crazy. It does. Um but to to have just kind of worked in in a building where people were, you know, I guess yeah, girls allowed were presumably kind of passing through all the time, and you were seeing because because Zenomania had a very particular way of working, didn't it? So that that you know you, that you'd often in this instance, girls allowed wouldn't even know how a song because they'd have to sing bits of songs, wouldn't they? Yes. And it was often it wasn't until they heard the record back till they realised which bits of songs were on. That's exactly it. It was quite. It was. It was a method that worked. Um, Brian really brought great talented people in there. Mm. I mean, we were in in the house that belonged to Alice Little, who was the woman that inspired Alice in Wonderland. It was a. It was a listed house. It was an ancient house in um, Westrom in Kent. I mean, I was imagine me like a New Yorker yeah. commuting. To yeah, Kent yeah. every day for work. It was hilarious. And then you had little cubby holes, each filled with an engineer or a lyric writer or a melody writer. And and this and you know, magical pop music was being made. So to, to witness this firsthand was really special. So even though it all went horribly wrong and we and all of us suffered a lot from from the end of it, yeah. it was so worth it to to be able okay. to experience that. No reunions, no Christmas card lists. I see. Soon. No, I see. I see. Actually, the the funny thing when you when you work with a lot of people under a dictator, yeah, the, those people really yeah. bond. So yeah. that's it's a lifelong bond. And actually, tonight I'm going out with a whole bunch of them. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Happy to hear something good has been uh, uh, salvaged from the situation. Okay, let's kind of. I'm kind of in a roundabout way. I'm yeah. coming to. Um, some of the work you've done with Ace Records and that. And I guess this is kind of my into talking about the two wonderful uh, comp- Japanese pop compilations you've put together, uh, Nippon Girls 1 and 2. Before we just precisely go on to there, I think we need to talk about, again, this, you know, I guess it's all emblematic of your slightly monomaniacal kind of way of doing things. Your move to Tokyo at the age of 24, was yes, it? Yes, 24. I mean, you made, you've made it sound, you primarily you were moving to Tokyo to just get the records that you needed to get. To sort <laughs> of, I mean, was it that simple? It was actually to, I didn't realize the records would be such a big part of it. Um, I moved primarily to, to learn Japanese. So when I moved back from London to New York in the late 90s, uh, actually this ties in 
heavy metal as well. I love telling the story because I was an obsessive Megadeth fan for a very long time. And I was listening to girl groups and Megadeth and a lot of other metal bands at the time. And I kind of followed Megadeth around a little bit. I went on this fan club tour and saw them play three times. And at the end of it, we got to meet the band. And I handed the guitar player, Marty Friedman, a copy of Cha-Cha Charming. Three weeks later, I get a letter in the mail saying, oh, my God, Sheila, it's from Marty Friedman. I'm a record collector, too. I love girl groups. I collect Elvis records. We have to meet up. We have to talk about this. Do you know Japanese music? Because I'm, you know, I, my wife is Japanese. I speak Japanese. I'm obsessed with Japanese pop music. So I write him back. I have no idea. He sends me a mixtape. And that, another eureka moment number three, the Japanese pop stuff. Amazing. Yes. Just amazing. Oh, so, yes, the, the guitarist of Megadeth introduces me to really wonderful Japanese pop music from the <laughs> 70s, 80s, and 90s. And from that moment on, I decided I want to dedicate myself to learning Japanese. So I went, I majored in Japanese in college, and I decided when I graduate, I'm moving to Tokyo. I love, I'm going to go and see all my favorite bands. You know, kind of similar attitude to how when I first moved to London. Yeah. I want to just yeah. be surrounded by this music. So moved to Tokyo. And there I discovered these these compilations called Cutie Pops Collection, which was Japanese 60s girls. And at first I was I was disappointed. It sounds very different. It's not France Gaulle. It's not the Shangri-Las. Uh, it was it's you know, the, the there's a kind of dissonant sound. There's a darkness to it. It's there's it's rooted in this in this uh, Japanese blues, which is called Enka, you know, very kind of sorrowful, heavily yeah. vibrato yeah. voice. And I couldn't latch on to that at first. But after a while, it grew on me. And then that again, click. Now I need to collect all these records. And so while I was there, I was able to dig for all this stuff that nobody was. I mean, Japan was not on the map in the Western world musically yet. No, you know, no. maybe with Pizzicato 5 a little bit, with yeah. Puffy a little bit, but nobody had explored really the 60s stuff, except for Ace and Big Beat, who had done the GS I Love You compilations in around, I think, the late 90s. So they were ahead of the game. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, and I was DJing the stuff in Japan, and I was, you know, just chatting with, you know, Japanese fans about this music, and they thought I was a crazy person. Like, how do I? Why am I, you know, twenty-four-year-old girl listening to like, you know, Mayuzumi Jun, who's like a, one of the pop yeah, singers? Yeah. Um, and and then I thought I want to present this music to the West because also there's this, being a student of Japanese, you're also confronted with this kind of exoticism that's in the kind of the idea of oh like Japanese women you know I was in class with so yeah. many men wanting to learn Japanese so they could yeah. go out with Japanese girls and and just this way of presenting Japan as the other you know and orientalism and all that so I thought I, I'm, a, I'm aware of this so I can do this in, in a way. You need to do this as it deserves to be done. Exactly yeah. and thus Nippon Girls. But you cut a long story it's yes. kind of short but you know because it, it was quite a while before Nippon Girls came out. Now you mentioned this sort of I guess this kind of equivalent of uh, Japanese blues called Enka. Mm. Um, I mean, the the the, the 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 music that you put together on these compilations is um, it's. I mean, it is kind. It's kind of other, but it also it sounds immediately like pop. Yes. So, and you're a pop fan, so it must have just scratched that itch for you straight away. Oh yeah, it did. It just in a. Oh, I mean. I had an expectation and I was disappointed. You know, I thought it was this stuff was going to sound like Franz Gall and yeah. and it didn't. It it's not yeah, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't sound have like the Gaal, no, yeah. it doesn't yeah. have the softness in the voice. It's yeah. much harsher and and you know some of the the the, the, the arrangements, the chords are, are different. So mm. so it definitely it needed to grow on me, you know, and 
And once it did, that was it. And yeah, the, yeah a lot of the songs are, on the, the, you know, you sort of have to, you know, you're almost blinded by their idiosyncrasies, a, a lot of them. And so you have to sort of, you have to get over the sort of novelty. And then you sort of, what are some of, what were some of, tell me about some of your favorite discoveries. Definitely uh, Jun Mayuzumi's Black Room, which is, oh, yeah, which is, yeah. I think, the one of the opening track. On, I mean, that, that basically started it all, you know. I, oh, okay. I, I had bought the, her, the, the single that was a big hit, flipped it over, discovered Black Room, and thought, this is the most incredible, like, R&B, funk, Japanese record I've ever heard. I can't. And nothing, I've, uh, nothing tops that record. I, I've, I still continue to search, and I've never found a record so as good as that. So that had to start everything off. It started everything yeah. off. That's number one. And that's always the, the, the record that's in my DJ box. And now many people DJ that record around the world. It's kind of a, Gratifying. you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, God, what other ones do I love? I love, there's a there's a songwriter and arranger and producer named Tsutsumi Kyohei, who's, um, who I'm obsessed with. And like yeah. his his tracks are all over Nippon Girls. So um, let's what's, see. It, what's his sort of signature? Yeah, what, what is sonically, what, what, what is it that sets his songs apart? The melody, the melodies are, I, t to me, he, he was, obs I, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine he's obsessed with Burt Backrack and Hal David, well, Hal David less because mm. it's, in, you know, the lyrically yeah, Japanese, yeah. but yeah, I think the kind of complexity of melody, yet also very, um, very, you know, obviously catchy. So, mm. I mean, that's what Backrack is. He's such a master of this kind of, you're like, this doesn't, this shouldn't make sense and be so catchy because it's yeah. so complicated, yeah. yet it, it, yet it is. And so yeah. I think Tsutsumi Kyohei has that has that as well. So whatever he did is is melodically beautiful. Mm. And he he definitely was very knowledgeable about Western music. And he, he had a long career. I mean, he was writing great records in the 80s and 90s as well. Oh, okay. So he worked very closely with Ayumi Ishida, who's also on there, Mieko Hirota, who's on that compilation. Um, Often you don't know what you're hearing, but you love it. Like the, the, the Keiko, is it Keiko Marie track, the, is it? Uh, Tsukikage no Rendezvous. Yeah. So cute, that song. It's like a, something from a film, I would imagine. <laughs> but I don't know, really. I don't exactly know what I'm listening to. I just know I love it. I know. I mean, it's, it's as, it's it, like, lyric, it's as, like, sweet and wonderful as it sounds, you know, lyrically and, and its feel. So this this is quite some undertake. So you, so you, before you kind of went over there to learn Japanese in earnest... You'd, you said you'd majored in it? Is I majored, right? yeah, I studied a lot here, yeah, in New York. I mean, you're really, I mean, there's, this is a kind of like a, 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 a leitmotif running through your life. You sort of, you know, I read somewhere else that, you know, you, when you decided to learn heavy metal guitar, you, I mean, that what a thing to learn. You know? <laughs> I was a really good heavy metal guitar player, and then I just dropped it. That's another thing I do, aside from the girl group stuff, is I get really into something, and then I move on. So I can't, I, I, if, like, put me in Japan right now. I think I'd struggle to speak very well, even though I dedicated a good, like, eight, nine years of my life to it. Was it, was it, was there a specific metal guitar course that you did? Or did, or did you just, did you do a course and that you adapted what you learned to metal guitar? No, I just played along to Megadeth records like six hours a day. I'd be in school, come home, and just play guitar. Well, that would do it. Yeah. I mean, to, I guess to people listening, you know, the, the people would be like, okay, where's where's the, in the Venn diagram between girl groups and Megadeth? 
What's mm. what's what where what's like you know how how do I get my head around this? I was asked this question in an interview recently, actually, and the answer is melody. I mean, Dave Mustaine is a master melody writer, and and again, you know, you mentioned this thing of having to get past certain elements of music in order to really be able to get to the kind of nitty gritty. Yeah, I think that's the same with Megadeth. Like you might hear Megadeth and think, you know, it's hard to get past, you know, those shrieking guitars, and Dave Mustaine has a very distinct voice that's often unpleasant to people. But if if it if if it gets you, you can he's he's a melodic master. I mean, he really is. Okay. Well, obviously, I want to go and you know <laughs> listen to Megadeth now. <laughs> well, maybe not now, but maybe tonight. Um, and um, let's. So we've talked a little bit about um, Nippon Girls, and mm. so you've got this kind. You know this lovely arrangement here with uh, and it is you know this is my mm. first visit to the uh, ace hq and um you know you it's lovely to get the tour actually and to see you know the gentleman who kind of does you know masters old 1948 sort of um, acetates yeah. in order for you know and it's like a real it's like my romantic notion of what a record company is mm. so it's lovely to um Let's talk a little bit about um, the the Beat Girls uh, okay. compilations, and uh, oh. I said, which I mean, I guess um, my first love, the the British girls. So which one? There's one that you co. So is it? Married so love hit me is the one that I. I mean, I'm I'm involved in different ways in both, but yeah. I'd say love hit me. I wrote all the notes. Um, Marylebone Girls. I helped with some tracks, and I wrote the introduction. And you helped, so you co-compiled it yes. with Mick Patrick, Mick who obviously Patrick. was a sort of a guiding sort of hand at the very beginning. So Mick Patrick will have sort of seen your tra sort of transition from someone who wanted to know about this stuff, who's now uh, just a leading authority on it, which must be very gratifying for him. Oh my God. I mean, my when you say even the name Mick Patrick, like my heart it like warms because he is such a special human in my life and I'm so lucky that he's in my life and I owe so much to him really for for this work he as i said when i first moved to london he, i met him he took me under his wing was so generous with the no, the knowledge mm. the records you know putting me in touch with people and and funnily enough this is how 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 beautiful life can be is like the the here come the girls compilations that him and malcolm did together there was one last one that um sam who's also at ace records now that she comp she put together for sanctuary mm. and sam and mick asked me to do the liner notes so that was my first liner notes project wow. the compilation that changed my life i got to do the liner notes for the yeah, final yeah. one and so you know these are 60s british uh, female singers and i just i've you know i've been collecting them since the day i started buying records you know when i was well collecting records i've been buying records since i was a kid but mm. you know since i moved to london at age yeah. 17 so these you know the to be able to so those you know those compilations are are old now they're like, well, like late 80s early 90s and so now these are you know bringing giving bringing uh, how how would i say this it's like trying to to really hit the point home that the british female artists have a lot of quality because i feel that a lot of people think oh well it's the american girls the northern soul the kind of you know the girl groups the ronettes that's the real good stuff i think people can be quite dismissive yeah. of the british girls yeah, it's kind yeah. of like second tier mm. and i would say that's so you know, you, you can't one that the two you can't compare the two. There's such a different sound yeah, yeah. in the production and in the value and the in like what they were going for. So it's really the I think Love Hit Me and Marlebone Beat Girls are saying, 
this stuff is is fantastic. Let's show you. Let's try find another way to show you. Show and the as world. a as a sort of New Yorker coming to it with that sort of distance, mm. uh, what what's what's the appeal? You know, sort of. So you know, we talk, talk about I guess the artists. I'm thinking about you know, sort of, you know Billy Davis mm. or um, um, or the the young Julie Driscoll before before she kind of went in the slightly more jazzy mode. Uh, what also the McKinleys, which is, a, but also people like who I can't see in front of me, people like Kiki D and. Mm. Um, um, what is it that kind of makes those? Pe- I guess it may be exotic even to you, or certainly exotic. What? What? Yeah. What? What is it that you think gives them that edge? I think when I'm listening to American girl groups, you know, if I was going to take the Chiffons and the Ronettes, and you know, even some of the more obscure artists like Bernadette Carroll, I feel like I'm listening to girls. When I listen to British these artists I feel like I'm listening to women mm. these are like tough girls like mm. Billie Davis even though she was a teenager she was she was sexy and womanly and mm. and fearless I feel like they 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 just stood out in a kind of more more I am woman way as opposed yeah. to, to, the, to the girl groups in, in the states or even though the Shangri-Las were tough I feel like they were still girls and that's so that's one and then the production is also i think a little bit more rock and roll less less sweet yeah you know i mean the mckinleys yes they have kind of specteresque kind of sweet records but but say like on on Marlebone Beat Girls, Helen Shapiro, Stop and You Will Become Aware. I mean, that's yeah. such a tough, like banging soul record, you know. And and her Helen Shapiro's voice is so is so strong and like you know like really like none I've ever heard. Yeah, they say there's a kind of loudness about a lot of these records. A lot of them are just recorded really loudly, and yeah. so there there is almost you know even when there's almost. With a lot of them, there's almost a sort of hint that you know you you're kind of on the cusp of something kind of freak beaty. Exactly, like yeah, freak beat is a great is a great word for for this kind of stuff. Where there's less of that in in American you know female pop music in the, in the '60s. I mean, there's there are the you know there's some like banging northern soul you know northern rec you know Motown stuff. But really, I think I think the British girls are made tougher productions. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Yeah. The I mean the the McKinley's track "Sweet and Tender Romance" is um, is a case in point. I mean it's just uh, it's thrilling. Mm. Yeah. And then I saw that it, there's even footage of it from Ready Steady Go on YouTube. Oh. I mean, that, isn't that a great thing when you just look more in hope than expectation? You think surely this can't exist. So surely there can't be surviving footage of this song that wasn't a hit. Why it's would amazing. there be? Yeah. And then you kind of go, and then they. These moving images flicker in front of you. I mean, that's, that's that's great. That's and then and then with England is what's so nice is like the you you get you know you I used to go to the British Library and look through old old melody makers yeah. and see all of these women featured. Where America being such a big country, you don't you know most of these women never had a chance to go on TV or you know they're every one of these women really felt. I mean I've interviewed so many of them like Truly Smith and the Orchids. They and they were working, you know, they would go like one of the orchids said, oh, I was in Andrew Lou Oldham's car. You know, <laughs> they were all felt that they could make it because the possibility was truly there for for all of them. And I think in the States it wasn't, you know, you just knew True. it's like it's going to be this like independent label. that's not going to go anywhere where we're here. They're on Columbia and they're on pie. So you hear so many stories, don't you? Of just, you know, um, these girls who just speculatively just traveled down from it might have been Bradford or Macclesfield or Birmingham or whatever 
just merely because they wanted to be, they wanted to sing and 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 possibly maybe to their astonishment realize that it was actually kind of that easy you know that mm. someone probably would offer you a deal if you you were merely willing to do it absolutely and yeah. that's kind of an unrepeatable time isn't it yeah god <laughs> who was the, who was the singer i'm looking at my notes i'm trying to find them, but who was the singer who um who almost refused to sign a deal because the the record label wouldn't sign her band uh, and her band encouraged her to just go it alone. Was was it Beryl Marsden? I think it might have been Beryl Marsden, yeah. Yeah, because she was, oh yeah, she was pissed about, and I know it's a different meaning, pissed off, pissed off yeah, yeah, <laughs> with how she was treated because she was she was in a rock and she was fronting like R you know a R and B band and yeah. she wanted rock and roll all the way and then the label came in and saying we want to put you in a tiara and, and a and a puffy dress and she was I think she burst into tears well and yeah. so they sent her in that direction and she was not happy and also but I'm glad you put um Be- or Beverly Beverly Cutner as she was then with where the good times are which I think was originally a B side wasn't it. I, I can't remember. Well, it was, was it Happy New Happy Year, New Year was the other side. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I could be wrong yeah, as I well. think you're right about that. Yeah, but where the good times are is such an amazing. Mm. Again, it goes, it kind of edges into freak beat, doesn't it? It does. Right? And there, there's your answer with the difference between American and British girls, right? Records like that weren't being made at that in 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 the U.S. in that style. Like this was this is very this is all about Britain. A record like that. Yeah, her story's amazing as well. I mean, she toured with, at the time, I think she toured with Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, she did. And had to come home, didn't she, because yeah. her mother died. Oh, it's a, very, it's a very depressing story. Her, her story is really, yeah. I mean, then, you know, then she met John Martin. And oh, it and all went. I know, yeah. I know. But she did, not before making a couple of great records with him, but then. Then it kind of all went. It got dark, it and got she dark. she wrote a book about it, which I read actually when I was doing these liner notes. I love that. I love really delving into the personal stories of yeah. of these women. But again, it's that kind of encroaches into that labor of love territory because you just want to do the job well, mm. um, and these it's, it's just wanting to do the job well because you you can't it doesn't necessarily you can't justify it financially. No, <laughs> no, and you and you I you know when I when I do this and sometimes when I get frustrated with how difficult because I find writing very difficult mm. or or just putting the project together can often be you know with the licensing it can take a while or um i always try and remember like this person thought they like this was their chance and yeah. they had their whole heart was usually in it everything was riding on it it meant the world to them they're now in a very different position probably there's a little bit of you know sadness looking back and so i want to honor their story and i really try and keep that in mind with every person that i'm covering yeah. you know that that the hope and the the joy and the excitement and and mm. you know and then and then also the truth about what what may 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 not have happened yeah. later on you know so you got re- you sort of uh, I think you have you know, your connection with the music of Leslie Gore mm. is a sort of case in point and you've put together a, a compilation which uh, uh, not a compilation no it's a re- it's an expanded reissue of, of the Girl Talk album of the Girl Talk album yes that's right. and. Um, for and you um you met her didn't you about a year before she died I did yeah yeah so Mick Mick put together the the reissue girl talk and he he asked me to do the notes and he said you know Leslie Gore is around why don't you get in touch and do an interview so I went to her apartment and uh, up on the upper east side penthouse apartment beautiful sat there with her and her dog 
And she was so forthcoming and so open about her life. I mean, she had really been through hell when we sat when we sat together to talk. There was no mention of any illness, but her apartment, her former apartment, had burned down, and she was in this whole lawsuit with former landlords. And she was saying just how exhausted she was from it. So it was really kind of it was a bit heavy. Yeah. Um, but she was also so. I mean, just. She spoke so openly about what it was like to be a woman in the industry and how how much better she knew she could have done had, had sexism not been yeah. a part of her career. And that she really became a capable songwriter and producer, but no man would look at her as a producer. I mean, of course not. You are, you're a female. You're a producer. There's no way. So she, she would tell me stories about how... You know, she was practically producing some of these records, yeah. yet, yet, like the guy, you know, who just got a his like first job, you know, in in the office, would all of a sudden be given a production credit because he had a family and he that he needed to support, and so yeah. the the boys are going to take care of him. So there was a lot of stories about that, a lot of her kind of how aware she was of um, the need for you know feminism, and she was going to yeah. fight for it. So she was working very closely with young people, and how you don't own me became the anthem, and how it's still the anthem. And so it was such a oh, I mean, I just thought this woman is incredible. She's so rich and yeah. so you know as, as a person. And she was ready to tell her story, mm-hmm. as people so often are. You know, you know at that point where, I guess you know they must be wondering whether or not they will be remembered as they want to be remembered. Yeah. And so I guess it, she would have been grateful that to have had someone like you there who to, to sort of listen, really. I think. I mean, she was she was great. She was very open. I felt like she didn't hold back, and she was happy to share, and yeah. I listened to and she was still writing great songs, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, late on, even some great tracks on her last album. Yeah. And... Um, she co-wrote, a, I, I didn't know until a few years ago that the, the Michael Gore who wrote the song Fame yeah. was her brother. Her brother. And they co-wrote a couple of songs on that soundtrack. Yeah, there was one Irene Cara song that won, I think won a Grammy that she that she co-wrote. Is it Out yeah. Here On My Own? I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the one, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that as well, you know. Mm. So what a pedigree. So um, where are you, so you're sort of, you've... You constantly, you got irons, irons in the fire. I do. What can we expect further down the line? Well, I have a, I have a compilation of a Spanish singer named Jeanette, who I'm. I, I always use the word obsessed, but I am. It's true. I'm what obsessed. What do we need with to know her. about Jeanette? Tell us what we need to <laughs> so know. So Jeanette was um, born in London, raised in in Los Angeles. And then moved to, actually, maybe then Chicago and then Los Angeles. I hope I'm getting this right, but I might not be. And then and then to, to Spain. And so she was a teenager in Spain, and she was singing, and she became a part of a group. Uh, she joined a group called Picnic as the lead singer. And there was this, this kind of folky, beautiful songs. And she just has a voice like nobody else. It's so soft. It's like the softest, silkiest voice. And so melodic. And then she ended up... Having uh, going so you know having a solo career and working yeah. with some of the best Spanish songwriters and it's very romantic, dreamy music. So I've I've compiled some of the picnic stuff and some of Jeanette's solo material on the Hispavox label and later on Ariola, and it, it's from like late '60s until mid '80s, and so it's kind of a real span. And so it's going to be a compilation of all that material, and I and I interviewed Jeanette as well. So that's that's next up on the Ace Record label. And how did she enter your world? Where she entered my world. I was on vacation. 
Was I in the Bahamas? I was in the Caribbean. That's where we Americans like to take our vacations if we can. And there was a DJ and I ran up to him and I thought this was pre-Shazam, pre-internet. And I ran up to him and I said, who is this? And he said, it's Jeanette. And the song is called Por Que Te Vas. So I went back home and I like did all my research and bought the single and thought, oh, my God, I've, I've landed upon a treasure <laughs> and then bought every record with her name on it. And then I saw her live recently. She came to New Jersey. We, I was like the only, my friend Gaylord and I, my friend Gaylord Fields, who's yeah, an FMU I, yeah. DJ, he's writing the liner notes to this actually. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So the two of us went to this gig where like all these major Spanish stars performed. We're the only people that don't speak Spanish. And like Jeanette is performing. We're like singing her lyrics. <laughs> and she, you know, and she's still out there performing. You must have made a few friends that night, I would imagine, if you They're <laughs> just like, drew <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> I like it. Well, I get that. Whenever I go and see it, one of my favorite Italian singers, Paolo Conte, mm -hmm. and I'm invariably the only British person in the audience. And uh, but um, you get it, right? It just it doesn't well, matter. Yeah. I don't sing you. along. I don't thank, <laughs> no one would thank me if I, uh, if I sang along. Um, and you want yes. so what's so Je so Jeanette for Ace, um, and I have a couple of other irons in the fire at Ace, but too soon too soon to say because okay. it hasn't you know things good, been. Good, good. Um, and I'm also working on a compilation for Numero Group girl oh, groups, yes, independent I, label girl groups. I was going to say, you know, that if you ha at some point you're destined to do something for Numero Group. I'm very excited about that. I have a big smile saying Numero Group. <laughs> so what? So what's the kind of angle on the Numero Group comp? So it's it's you know female artists on independent labels and stuff that yes exactly. So they have they have a compilation out that's coming out I think this Friday called Basement Beehive. Hmm. So it's kind of underground girl groups. Okay. And so this is going to be part two to that. Because they're sort of very kind of tapped into that sort of very good at kind of sourcing kind of regional things and sort of I love their um, their kind of kid soul compilations yeah. the, the ABCs of, <gasps> ABC. one of us was the ABCs one of us one two threes yeah some really kind of life affirming stuff on mm. that as well and they they've managed to dig out some real gems that no one has gotten to yet so yeah. it's exciting to do to do something for them isn't it great that sort of the people you know we kind of find each other don't we all around the world we do we sort of, it's very good. It's yeah. very gratifying. Yeah. And then one last thing that it's completely different from anything I've ever done is that I have two co-writes on the upcoming St. Etienne EP. No. Yeah. So I'm kind of dipping my toes happen? into Tell songwriting. It's so nuts. Um, well, again, Bob. I mean, really, Bob is probably the most influential person in my life. And I, I'm so happy that he exists. Yeah. So because I really I've, I've I've followed his path. So in such in such a big way, really, yeah, he's one, you know, I, influential on my life, too. Yeah. Which is which is so nice. So he sent me a couple of backing tracks and because we had done a little bit of work at, at, at Xenomania together. And so he knew that I was, you know, I was in, you know, kind of, you know, curious about the whole songwriting thing. And. And so he's like, why don't you try writing some, you know, some melodies over these tracks? And at the at um, Russ Titleman, who used to be of, you know, a songwriter in the 60s yeah. and, and then became a well-known record producer. So him and I are good friends. And so Russ and I kind of just got, I was like, Russ, why don't you and I try writing on one and of these songs? You co-opted Russ Titleman into co-writing a say Etienne et et song with Basically. You. So, so now <laughs> Russ, like, and the band and me have one song. And then I wrote another song with the band. So two co-writes on, on the St. Etienne Surrey EP. 
So now Amazing. that's kind of where I'm, I'm. What I don't have a goal for it, but I want to. I want to do more songwriting. That's a big tick on the list, isn't it? That's a good one. Yeah. God, he's asked me a couple of times if I, you know, and um, I've never sort of quite. Uh, now that you've done it, I feel like re-energize. I might do even. it. You know, because I mean, I people do say that you know, music journalists are are kind of you know that we've all we all desire to be artists. I don't know if, I don't know if failed artist is the right word. That's not the right word, but like aspiring art yeah, artists yeah, in some yeah, way. Yeah. And I know that I at a very like young age I, I was kind of looked upon as well Sheila you're 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 good at, you know, writing about music and you're good at um you know this and that but I don't think you're an artist or I don't think you have it and so I always believed that I thought okay I'm not you know mm -hmm. I don't have the the talent or the ability but then you know as you as you as you age and you kind of see people making music you're like it doesn't matter it's just expression it's nothing to do whether you're good or bad or able or not able it's it's why not just explore that part? Why not just have the fun? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I encourage you to have the fun because I I did I I remember sitting with Russ and I said, I don't know if I can do this. And he kind of looked at me. He's like, well, I don't know if you can do it either, but let's just try it. Yeah. And I could. Like, I can write pretty decent melodies. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's uh, everyone wakes up with an earworm from time to time. And once in a while, those earworms don't exist outside your head. Exactly. Um, and uh, so one final question. Yes. Um, you, um, what's top of your wants list at the moment? Oh, What's Lord. eluded you so far? Oh, my God. There's so many things. There's a record I was introduced to a few years ago called I Will Sacrifice by Irma Rutan, which costs like $9 million. So I'll never find that unless I find it, you know. Have you got a cutoff like with the maximum that you would spend on? The yeah, I, I mean, I've spent four hundred dollars a couple of times on some forty fives, but normally I will. Ne I mean, mm. that's only like there's maybe two records that I've spent that much money on. That it's yeah. it, I, I'm I have some friends that will spend eight hundred dollars on a forty five. I just can't do it, you no. know. No. Um, but I, I'm, that that doesn't seem like I love that record, but it's not like the top. That's such a oh god, I can't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. I'm sure I've asked Bob, like, do you have this? Oh, I don't have Jackie Trent's You Baby. That's another northern record that I've never. And then Lorraine Silver Lost Summer Love, two records that were in demand when I started collecting this stuff. So now even more in demand. Yeah, no, okay. Yeah. So forget about it. And if it. you found them in a shop and they're reasonably priced, is it the kind of thing whereby you'd be like all cool about it? You'd kind of take it to the shop in a really, to the counter in a really kind of glacial kind of no big deal way or would you be really trying hard not to kind of lose yourself trying hard not to lose myself that's happened a few times where like i've seen something i'm like this record's worth 200 dollars, and it's 50 dollars, and i'm having a heart attack inside and i want to tell tell the 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 clerk that he has a you know a yeah, serious yeah. record on his hands and then i feel guilty but i'm like you know what he has it priced at this price i'm gonna very coolly go up there and buy it walk away and scream my head off mm. i have recurring dreams about that kind of thing oh <sighs> It happens. I enjoy my I, re I enjoy those recurring <laughs> I bet. I but then you wake up, you're like, I don't have that record. <laughs> yeah. I also have re recurring dreams about certain record shops that exist in real-life locations, but actually in real life, they've there's never been a shop in those locations. Oh, wow. I don't know if that's a collector thing. Yeah. Maybe. Anyway. Um, 
I digress. Uh, Sheila, it's been a joy. So it's much fun. Flown by. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, Sheila B., uh, do check out her WFMU uh, show every week. Can you remind us of yes, the time? Yes, every Friday, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which is what, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. UK time like. on WFMU.org. Like a pro. You are a pro. <laughs> um, you've been listening to the Ace Podcast. I've been Pete Perfides. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it and uh, keep listening. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.